back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and find out what a life and career in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by avian cognition and behavioral scientist Lucy Farrow. Welcome to the podcast, Lucy. Hey, James. How are you going? Good, thanks. Now, it's soon to be Dr. Lucy Farrow. How far off are we? Not soon enough, I feel. <laughs> I've got about a year left. <laughs> All right. Okay. So that's... I feel like the last year of PhDs is where everything Don't scare happens. me. Don't scare me. Where <laughs> no, I feel like it should be reassuring because, yeah. you know. Yeah, all the exciting stuff's happening and we're yeah. starting to see some some ideas and concepts coming together and the end of the road mm. is, is visible. <laughs> where, where's your love-hate relationship with noisy miners at the moment there? Look, I love to hate them. They're one of those <laughs> species that, you know, they're having a detrimental impact on other birds. So you kind of want to hate them in that sense. But the reasoning behind why they're having that impact is really exciting and promising for the field of cognition, really. So they're native birds, mm-hmm. but they're invasive. Yes. How, yeah. how does that work? So they're a classic example of a native species that is actually thriving in anthropomorphic environments. So we're seeing a lot of the bad situations where land clearing and fragmentation is wiping out all of your pretty little blue wrens and smaller birds from the garden. But birds like your magpies and your corvids and your noisy miners are all of a sudden moving in and taking over. All right, yeah, you can kind of picture... Urban gardens or at least replanted areas where, yeah, they've gone through and planted a bunch of natives, but they're all just kind of eucalypt Yeah, they're all the same It's a different type of monoculture. Yeah, and the second you see plantings where it's all overstory, perfect for noisy miners because they're the only honey eater that can walk. So if there's nothing on the ground, then it's like the dolphins in The Simpsons. They're just kind of walking around. (laughs) (laughs) You're not limiting them. So... Um, we're seeing that, yeah, the more we clear the land, the more we're opening up resources for them and getting rid of the cover for the little guys that get bullied by the noisy miners. Yeah, so overstory as in tall trees or all the leaves trees, at the top. Yeah, and then so no shrubs or yeah. anything, yeah. I feel like that fact that they're the only honey eater that can walk is a little bit freaky. It's a little bit. I do every now and then watch wattle birds because I'm <laughs> I'm waiting to see <laughs> it take the first step. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's when the world will end. But <laughs> it, like they don't even touch the grind, or they kind of hop they, around. They hop stupidly? around. Yeah, they do like a cute little hop. Yeah. Whereas noises actually do the bipedal classic one step for man sort of step out. I didn't know that. I have to pay yeah. more attention to them. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so is it that? They so they like clear grind areas that yeah. they can walk on. Yeah, and they so they're meant to be nectivores as well. But we're seeing that even though they have that brush tongue like a lot of Australian honey eaters, they are eating pretty much anything. So the ones that I use for my experiments eat Madeira cake. <laughs> and you'll see the ones at the pub eating potato chips. Like yeah. they're very flexible with what they eat as well as where they go. And these are our grey miners with yeah. Black faces, with yellow beaks, those ones. Yeah, the yellow eye patches, which is why a lot of people think they're the Indian miners mm. um, because they see, you know, the yellow eye patch and that's the most appealing feature of the noisy miner. Mm. Um, but it shares that with the Indian miner, which is an introduced species. So is this to the point where we actually have to think about management 
solutions. Yes, yes. currently there's um, culls occurring. Oh, okay. So a few years ago, we did some culls at UNE at the University of New England. Um, and we kind of found that culling didn't work. Within an hour, noisy miners were moving back in. Um, so that wasn't very promising, but it seems like research at um, ANU, I believe, has found that they do. So now it's a bit of this confliction as to whether or not culls are actually successful um, or if we should be refedging and then doing a cull to get rid of them. Mm. But they're definitely a native species that's being culled and that in itself is pretty unique. You know, they did it to crocodiles and that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> and the, yeah, the idea of culling a little tweety bird yeah is, <laughs> with a strange. shotgun seems a little bit excessive too like. okay so it's a proper that's going to be my next question do you yeah. just have to get really hot shot yeah so they, they hire shooters to go out and do it um so it is done well and quickly um but yeah it's just it seems to not be so effective so we're now looking at trying it again and um paul mcdonald who's my supervisor is using um, song meters and passive recorders to see if there's a way to kind of monitor when they're moving back in using their calls. Mm-mm. Not only are they really good at moving into these habitats, but they come in big numbers mm. and they're pretty aggro. Yeah. <laughs> What's going on there? Little bulls of rage. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they their colonies... Originally, we were looking at no more than 100. Now it looks like they go over 100 members in the colony, which Mm -hmm. in itself is ridiculous. Um, But they're also cooperative. So they help each other feed and forage and they help each other to mob. So they'll form little groups called coalitions. And there's usually usually about 15 to 20 individuals in those coalitions. Um, Size does change depending on what they're doing or if it's a big threat they're trying to get rid of. Um, and they change membership to those coalitions. So, you know, on one day Frank might be in the group and the next day he's kicked out, he can't sit with them anymore. So, yeah. It does seem like gang warfare when you see them out in the streets of suburbia. You've got a <laughs> patch of miners on one side of your garden and then magpies on the other. And it's Yes, and see, I'm, I'm very on the noisy miner fence when there's a gang war between magpies oh, and really? noisies. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but even within themselves, so if a noisy miner goes into the territory of another colony, then it itself will get attacked. So they're not just attacking other species, but themselves as well. And this shift to bigger colonies. Yeah. Do we know why? No. Um, I was kind of talking to Paul about this just one day as, as you know, Sesti aside during a chat and... It could just be we are opening up more resources. Mm -hmm. It could be other birds are struggling, so they're not able to kind of hang on to territories as much or they're moving towards, you know, we're seeing a lot of Western species travel east now, so maybe everything's just kind of shifting and squeezing in. Are they family groups? Yes, yeah. So um, we're kind of looking at it, but it appears to be that, you know, the offspring from one year will stay on Mm -hmm. into the next year and help its parents raise the next generation sort of thing okay so to make a huge thousand member colony yeah you then have to be stupidly prolific breeders I guess. Yeah. yeah yeah so the ones um armadale is pretty special in that our noisy miners breed all year mm. <laughs> whereas usually you know they have a set breeding season um so yeah they do breed a lot there's about two to three per clutch as well so you know they're 
having a few young and the successful, you know, um, there's some birds you see, they'll abandon the nest pretty easily, but noisy seem to have a, a nice success rate as well. And so if you have a colony made up of many coalitions and mobs and things, yep. are they entire family groups, mixes of families? We're looking into that, okay. yeah. So um, Farsnia, who is almost finished her PhD, is doing a lot of the genetics within the colony and seeing who kind of moves between colonies, you know, we know the females um, after their first year will disperse mm-hmm. and that presumably stops inbreeding within the colony, but we don't know where she goes or kind of what she does after that. So Farsney is looking at all of those little intricacies yeah. and, you know, what do you have to be to be a dominant male or a breeding male? Is it you're the relative of the last dominant male or are you completely different, that sort of stuff? So if we have individuals constantly getting kicked out of these mobs mm. or dispersing presumably they're off joining other you would hope so colonies. yeah or they're dying because you know if you get kicked out from one colony is it possible that you'll get accepted into another and mm. that's something we don't don't yet know but it's exciting sounds like there's got to be some pretty complex behavior yes <laughs> happening with all these group dynamics right yeah you're fi- we're kind of finding that you ask a question get an answer and then that bit of string just pulls and more comes out <laughs> with it and, <laughs> and so it's a bit overwhelming but it's exciting because it means there's a lot of potential for future research and flexibility with what people want to study and look at have we got a grasp on sort of the level of complexity of what's going on are they like are they recognizing individuals of their own colonies mm visually or by their calls or how, how do their societies work yeah so um i did a fair chunk in my honors and the behavioral component of my phds looking into that mm-hmm. um it appears to be that they do discriminate individuals based on their alarm calls or their calls in general is yeah. more what we're thinking um makes sense because you know they live in trees so you're not going to always be able to see you know, Marie on the other side of the park, but you might be able to hear her and (laughs) know that it's her. Um, So we're looking into whether or not they can not only identify the individuals, regardless of whether they've met them before, regardless of where the individual is. So there's a lot of studies that have found that ability, but they haven't controlled for location. And so it could be they're recognising, oh, you're a neighbour, but they're not recognising, oh, you're my neighbour, Bob. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of looking into that and seeing if there's potential and um, that in itself is complex, really. You know. Yeah, we know that birds are smart, but we often think about parrots. Parrots and crows. Yeah. Even um, your uh, magpies are the current, the big thing in yeah. Australia. Magpies are getting a lot of attention for it. And as those species should, because they all have really complex focal systems mm-hmm. and... Um, I think with humans, we love to find similarities with us. And so the second you see something that can either speak words Mm. like a parrot can or mimic um, or sing a really beautiful song so that you feed it worms like a magpie, that's when we start getting a bit interested. Um, Noisy miners don't do that for anyone. So, (laughs) 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 Um, you know, they do their really annoying chur call when they Mm. see you because you're a threat in their territory. But generally they won't try to impress you too much. <laughs> All right. So if we're looking at sort of call complexity as a benchmark yeah. of cognition, obviously that 
you know, throws octopus and stuff at the window. But, yeah, you know, yeah, assume true. there's other benchmarks. Yeah, that's it. There's there's about five on average that get kind of put forward as um, markers of intelligence. So mm. the focal complexity, problem solving. So your octopus is right up there. Um, your memory, like your ability to have a memory. And um, a big thing that's exciting at the moment is preemptive thought. So they're finally starting to see um, ways to study that and they're found with, um, I forget what crow species it is, but when they cache food, if they see that another crow's watching them, they'll cache it, they'll go hide behind a bush, wait for the other crow to not be watching anymore and then they'll run back out, dig their food out and re-cache it. Okay. Because, you know, they're preempting that that crow's just going to go in and steal their food from them. So that's just a exciting new level um and it shows that we can't just keep it all to one um component for all species you know one might have a good memory and the other one might be able to use tools or yeah i remember hearing a story from a friend who worked on some sort of civet in costa rica that was caching uh, bananas until they ripen oh he was picking green bananas from plantations and hiding them until they turned yellow and see that's something i would struggle with so yeah. i'm like because <laughs> i don't think civets are seen as particularly smart banana eaters things. as well yeah. like, <laughs> good on and, them <laughs> and i think they're hanging around plantations as well so yeah they're yeah they're, they're relationships. plantation um thrivers so it's we're seeing too how we are kind of in a way accelerating behaviors in animals that maybe weren't natural so mm. plantations brought in this new habitat that you know, there's not a lot of resources in there, but if you can eat bananas and learn how to eat them, then all the power to you. Yeah, I guess a similar story with noisy miners moving into yeah. urban vegetation. Learning to Ibis exploit. moving into yes. urban environments. It's almost, yeah, it's not like we're kicking out native species. We're just changing who are the, the champions. That's it. We're changing the dynamics. And it's, um, you know, with noises and the potential of culling them, it, you know, it might reduce their numbers and encourage other native species to kind of increase, but there's other species that are just under noisy miners and they're aggressive, like other honey eaters, your wattle birds, for example, mm. and we don't know what knocking the noisy miner down will bring up. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting sort of balance. One of the recent Attenborough documentaries is a whole thing about peregrine falcons and how... They almost went extinct, but now they're more common in the middle of New York City than yeah. anywhere else on the planet just because they've thrived in that habitat. That's it. We gave them all of a sudden artificial cliff faces mm. and perfect areas where there's a lot of food. There's pigeons everywhere. <laughs> 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 so they've got all of a sudden platters and buffets opening up. So Yeah. yeah. I know people hate, uh, what is it, bin chickens? or Yeah, the poor ibis yeah, gets a bit I of a feel slam. Like they're a, I'd rather them than pigeons yeah. and high sparrows. I feel like if you're going to have an urban bird, you go for a little dinosaur. Yeah, something that's a little bit cool. And I think coming to Armadale changed my mind on them because the ones down here yeah. outside of the city are clean and they do look, <laughs> <laughs> they look the way they're meant to, whereas you go into the city and it is kind of like you go down an alley and there's one walking up to you and you're a little bit <laughs> intimidated. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's seen some things. So, you know, they're, um, they're doing very well though, the Ibis and, yeah. you know, they're meant to be on beaches and feeding on crabs and stuff. And you see them using their beaks in dumpsters now. It's, yeah. it's unreal. The last time I went out to Western Plains Zoo, 
They were so proud of their little ibis island that they had this little <laughs> tropical paradise in the middle of Dubbo. And you know, look at all these ibis we have. And I'd just driven there from inner west in Sydney going, oh, this is adorable. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, you should let me know. I could have picked some yeah. up on the way. <laughs> but that shows too how it's all um, kind of the way people see the birds. So yeah. noisy miners have this really bad reputation generally but I do meet the odd person who actually sits down and in their garden and they watch them feed each other or swim. Like they like to go for baths together and it's all about how you see the, the bird. And Yeah. And I mean, magpies are probably a good example of that as well. Mm. I feel like appreciation for them and just the, the beauty of their calls and the their complexity calls. of their behavior. When I was growing up, they were little death machines. Well, yeah, see, and that's how I still, I'm still like magpies are my, <laughs> they scare me. They're, right. they're another, if you're a bird, they can't. So like um, for one of my experiments, I'm feeding my noisy miners to get them used to coming down to the feeders. Mm. And within a day, the magpies had learned to come down <laughs> and they had learned my car and my face. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> and now they've had a fledgling and now they bring that in. And I'm like, you were just another level that I'm not even going to touch that. <laughs> yeah. And I guess you'd be walking, spending lots of time out in the field, walking around prime swooping habitat. Yes. But <laughs> thankfully, I feed them all. So uh, they right. see me come in and they're pretty happy. But yeah. I would hate to be someone trying to catch them. <laughs> That's for sure. So where are we at with animal intelligence now? There's always like your your top 10 list. Has <laughs> that changed? And Is man's still... always up the top of course. too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, we like to put <laughs> him up there. Yeah. Um, and then I'm assuming primates... Primates, the octopus is, you know, that interesting, weird one that mm. people think's an alien. It doesn't make sense. It's just hanging out to the left. Um, but birds, yeah, they are making kind of... Making uh, waves in the cognition circles? Yeah, they, they had a bit of fame in the early 2000s and then they got knocked down again. And then now it seems like they're coming back up. The, the more we see weird things happening and the more people well i guess because they are moving into urban environments people are seeing weird behaviors yeah. more often so um the crows using the uh, pedestrian crossing to crack nuts <laughs> was something that just blew up the internet and that yeah. was again they're like oh, we're gonna have to revise the list of intelligent animals because this has happened <laughs> yeah well we had alex alex the parrot yeah beautiful yeah and he um i think that's individuals like Alex the parrot is what led to a change in neuroscience as well because um, I think it wasn't until 2005 where they started actually naming parts of the avian brain the same as mammalian okay. regions. Previously, it was kind of a bit of an outdated perspective and, you know, surely birds can't have the same structures as the mammal and now they'll, they've revised it and been like, no, they, they do and... If anything, the um, forebrain itself is pretty similar, which is where we know all of the thinking happens. So it's exciting. All right. So even at a morphological level, yeah, the brains are similar. The brains are similar. And we were shocked when we opened the noisy minor brain. Didn't really know what to expect. Like mm. um, My supervisor, Adam Hemlin, who does all the neuroscience work with me, um, he does everything with rats. Mm. You know, classic neuroscience, that's yeah. what they use. Um, and we're just shocked even by the positioning of the cerebellum relative to the brain and 
the optic tectums are large and you kind of expect that from something that's processing visual information really quickly but it's not until you actually look at it that you go oh wow like this is specifically driven for something so are they just converging on the same structure because i don't know when i think about what a cerebellum is I, th I think about where it is on the brain yeah if you look at something like a bird brain is it in that same spot or is it in a different spot but does the same thing yeah so we um it seems to be it depends on locomotion mm. so if you're a quadpedral animal it's um right at the back but if you're bipedal it's underneath and okay. so with noises that's why it's underneath their brain like in a human because they walk bipedally mm. but um it's definitely we are seeing you know if you're a species that relies heavily on scent you're um you've got different allocations and different brain regions are bigger depending on what you're doing mm. so there is the similarity in overall size of structures depending on your life history characteristics and i guess things like your optic lobes are going to be up near your eyes yes yeah and they cross over mm. so your left eye um goes to your right side and your right eye goes to your left side okay um <laughs> which we haven't yet looked at in noises you have to do a few studies for yeah. that but it's pretty much just assumed and it's been found um particularly in pigeons that they take in um information about conspecifics and kind of friends if you will from one eye to one side of the brain mm. and then they take in information about threats from the other eye and into the other side of the brain okay is, is this stuff all happening like fish upwards if we look at things there are our basal vertebrates mm. do we all have that same brain patterning happening or yeah, so it's all we we all have, or from what I've seen anyway. I'm mm. still trying to wrap my head around it, and I've already been warned that <laughs> should never have tried to, <laughs> to understand yeah. the brain. But um, you know, everything has the same structures, but the organisation might vary, and um, particularly so. There's a few hypotheses as to what drives intelligence or cognition because it's very hard to prove intelligence so mm. we're just aiming for cognitive complexity at the yeah. moment um and organizations one so if you do have um, differentiation of tissue types between regions in the brain and some level of distinguishing cells and stuff then okay um and they kind of assumed birds didn't really have that and then it was when they did that conference and they looked at all the different regions that they went oh wait they do actually have the differentiation occurring in the similar regions like in your mammals all right so a more cognitively complex brain is literally more structurally more structurally complex. um and the big the big thing is um larger mm. so that's still the um kind of the big hypothesis is you're smart because you've got a bigger brain essentially all right um where that sits i don't yet know um i personally think the um, hypothesis of brain size isn't um explaining what's happening there's you know you think of seeing someone running you can say oh they're using their legs to run but you know they're also having their heart Mm. powering them to run and there's other underlying features that we can't actually see that might be responsible as well yeah i remember hearing that idea put out there talking about things like octopus mm. that maybe their increased 
brain size and cognitive ability simply came from them having nerve-controlled chromatophore yeah. systems. Yeah. Is that something you've heard as it's well? It's like a byproduct, yeah. Yeah. That's it. And it's... um. So having all the little color-changing cells, each individual one is controlled by an individual nerve. Yeah. So all of those nerves feeding into something needs to have a big brain. Yeah. And the byproduct of that is smarts. Yeah. And you look at how close those nerves are to one another too. So not only do they have more messengers, but not too far of a distance between messages so mm-hmm. they can just pass them over really quickly yeah so um that's kind of what i'm leading towards or that maybe in some um animals have lost the need um there is a theory that i kind of like called um the expensive tissue hypothesis mm-hmm. and it's where you know having a big brain is really expensive it's the most costly organ in your body so um, they think, you know, in animals, they kind of take a balance, a trade-off. They go, you know, I can have a big brain and a smaller stomach, um, but that means that I won't be able to eat as much. And with uh, that support, because a lot of um, your intelligent um, animals are carnivores, and so you yeah. don't need a complex gut to be a carnivore. So there's support there, but it doesn't kind of go across the broad scale of animals, whereas... Um, They've recently found support that maybe it's gonad size. <laughs> so <laughs> the bigger the brain, the smaller the gonads, but you know, you can you might be able to live longer yourself and find mm. a mate more frequently and reproduce more often. Or you can take like the Cletus approach and just produce <laughs> heaps of offspring. You might get eaten in the next day, but is, is this a term duty. you've coined? Is the Cletus approach out there? <laughs> <laughs> Look. <laughs> You can get that one into I a paper. I procrastinate with a lot of Simpsons and <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if that, yeah, if maybe the title of a paper comes yeah. out. Um, but that's all the exciting things. And I think it makes sense because you think with birds, they've made so many changes for flight. Mm. Then why wouldn't they look at potentially losing tissue mass and just kind of pushing all the neurons closer together or shrinking them in size so that you still have the same number? Mm. And humans were not at the top of the list in terms of brain size to body size. Well, we weren't originally. And then um, we kind of went, well, how could we be? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Let's change the rules. (laughs) And that's where, and thankfully it did too, because they um, originally just did brain size. Mm. But obviously elephants have massive brains because they need to be able to power a massive body. Mm. Um, So then they came up with the brain to body mass ratio um and that puts humans on top okay we're about um i think our brains are eight times bigger than what they should be according to our sizes mm-hmm. um and elephants are about half of what they should be all right but you know that in itself says a lot to me because we do know elephants are intelligent and you know they live for so long and they have so many experiences and We've seen evidence of them socially learning and transmitting information from generations. So yeah. For some reason, I thought dolphins are tipping us at the scales. With dolphins them. are very high. Yeah, okay. I think it's bottlenose dolphins in particular, whether or not it's because they're the only dolphin we have brain access to. Mm. Um, but them and chimpanzees are the scary, scary close ones. <laughs> um, and then, of course, um, parrots have just started to reach the okay. list. 
but again, it comes down As in down we're to just starting to discover it, not they're growing bigger brains. That's what I'm yeah. thinking, yeah. <laughs> I think it's more access now. So we're finally going, oh, you know, humans and chimps are really cool to understand, but mm. they've been done to death. So let's look at another species that has a similar uh, toolkit for intelligence um, that's being proposed and see how big their brains mm. are and whether or not the theory sticks. And it is the kind of thing that really only works with vertebrates as well once we get into mm. insects and stuff the whole brain to body size thing goes out the window oh, yeah it, so g- it totally gets real different weird yeah <laughs> things like praying mantises have three brains running down their backs and they're dumb as a brick so you know <laughs> no <laughs> it works it works they're, they're pretty dumb I, I, I can say <laughs> well when we all know the male praying mantis sacrificing yeah. himself so <laughs> what's the thing the whole thing the whole point of him having extra brains down his back is so that there's still muscle control after he's got his head bitten off oh, to remaining. Oh, so he can still... Yeah. So it's there serving a different purpose other than what we assume brains are and always there to do. So fan- and that's why um, this all kind of came around, I think, was the entomologist being like, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, particularly with ants, though, mm. you know their brains aren't anything to talk about in the field of neuroscience but then they looked at their behaviors and they went how do you have this level of organization if you don't have some capacity and so they're the ones that are kind of pushing the um it's not brain size that matters and necessarily brain structure it's everything can't be put into a little box it's what you're doing is adapted depending on what you need yeah. And if you need three brains so that you can have your head ripped off and still produce young, then you're going to have a brain that does that. <laughs> My question was always around octopus and mollusks and things that mm. have a brain that's a ring around their esophagus yeah, just, and whether they could give themselves brain damage by eating something too big. I, yeah, I've never... Um, <laughs> that's, you've obviously had a seafood buffet one time and you've thought a little bit yeah, too if much. they're not chewing their food well enough and they just get a bit stuck in and there. And then it makes you wonder if that's why they have the beak and that's why yeah. they reduce their shell is maybe they oh, needed to be so able to chew yes. the food. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back. We'll um, <laughs> go write that one up. Um, yeah, and that's where it's um, it's getting exciting because the more we think of those weird little things and we start researching them the more that graph where it's like you know relative uh, brain to body mass explains intelligence and then now it's like oh but what about this and Mm. and it makes me frustrated because i would love to find the answer to something (laughs) but i i don't think we ever will and And that's why research is fun (laughs) and the more we branch out into these weird and wonderful critters Mm. the more our metrics for smartness are going to become oh. useless. Like, I guess, you know, I guess I was being a bit flippant with praying mantises, <laughs> being pretty stupid. But at the same time, I wouldn't know what to ask a praying mantis about but that's smarts. <laughs> you have to become Cause they're pretty very creative. Thing. It's like, yeah, how do you do a cognition test with a sloth? Like, they just don't care. They don't care. But there could be a lot going on in, in that little skull of theirs. Same with the praying mantises and stick insects. And, and this yeah. thinking of the number one cause of death for baby sloths is mistaking their arm as a branch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Maybe that's a good like, cognition okay. test. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, but that's, 
that could be it. Maybe that support for the tissue hypothesis where, mm. you know, or energy too because they don't use a lot of energy so they don't need a big brain to be powering it. Like yeah. they just need the bare basics. Like koalas, they unfortunately, you know, the Australian icon has a brain that's very tiny and has a lot of fluid around it mm. because falling out of the tree, as koalas <laughs> do, they need it to be able to kind of support their brain oh, a little bit. So yeah. it's a smaller brain and eucalyptus leaves aren't, well, eucalyptus leaves have done everything to tell the koala not to eat them and they're eating <laughs> them. So <laughs> nutritional value from the eucalyptus leaf is not high. So they're not getting enough energy to try yeah. and have a bigger brain. And it's... It's a big chicken before the egg situation yeah. of what came first, what happened and drove it. Within birds, we know these parents are smart. Mm-hmm. We know that it's the New Caledonian crow that's sort yes. of the new kid on the block that yeah, that's can the, pick locks and the, solve um, math qua- equations and things. And you see them knowing to... Um, I recently saw... And I don't know how people come up with these experiments because they're just insane. But mm. someone had like two tubes, um, like test tubes and to get the ball out of one there was like a little pail of water and the bird learned to pour the water <laughs> in to get the ball to float up and once yeah. they got the ball they got a treat and just like where yeah. are your miners sitting in the bird brain stakes Look, i'm not confident enough to give them the test tube and the <laughs> ball of water um experiment but they're doing a darn good job and mm. we're um We've done a few studies looking at how they recognise novel threats and they're very quick at picking up your good, your bad um, and transferring that information. Um, I even saw from, and it all came from honours and I was catching them in the wild and after about a week of catching them, I would go out there and all of a sudden they hated me. They would fly <laughs> off, do whatever, I would change my hair colour, maybe take them a day to figure out it was me again mm. and then they would come back. So I kind of saw that potential for them to learn really quickly and now I'm just having a bit of fun with um, what do they learn. Um, we're looking at not only uh, interactions with one another and their focal system and seeing how complex that is, but we're looking at problem solving too. So doing the um, self-recognition experiment, which is in the trial stages at the moment, that's where we get a mirror and we put a coloured dot on the bird and see if it tries to remove the dot that's under the beak by looking in the mirror. Um, And it's had mixed success. Magpies can do it, but um, the experiment that found that uh, essentially trained them, whereas I'm more interested in an innate ability. You know, if we pop them in front of the mirror, do they recognise themselves? And, Mm. you know, just talking to bird watchers or people that just kind of love birds in general, you do get all these anecdotal, oh, yeah, there's these ones that come over to my side mirror and look at themselves and preen and then fly off. So there's potential do we know how they recognize people and they go by clothes or hair or cars? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of looking at that at the moment. It's definitely seeming it's they're taking you in. They're taking in your facial features and learning okay. you. Um, that just comes from the work in my honors. I had Ahmet Barity who's finished, he's finished his PhD, he's now a postdoc uh, with UNE. Um, He did fantastic work on nestling behaviours. And so he was catching a lot of noisy miners. And 
I went out with him when I first started honors to learn from him and I was like why are there no birds around like this is horrible <laughs> and then I went out without him one day and they were all around and it, all right. they were had remembered that he's you know the big bad wolf that was out catching them yeah. so we're looking now at um just colors because you know colors are very basic thing that's very easy to test um and if there's potential for them to go oh red is bad yellow is good then it will um, kind of give us a bit of support to go, okay, let's make it harder. Do you recognize an actual face? As in? Human face. (laughs) So if you went out with a mask on, would they think you're a different person? Yeah, that's what I'm trying. Okay. So um, So I have... So you're walking around the bush with... Yeah. Masks on. Yeah. Okay. So um, <laughs> I'm shocked the police haven't been called because <laughs> there's been a few people that have seen me and I can't stop the walkthrough once it started. I have to just look at them, wave, not say what, anything. What, hang on, what type of masks are we talking uh, about? Right now, just coloured masks. So okay. it's not full, full creepy. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> there's some things Not that shouldn't be Freddy happening Kruger, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> um so just colors and seeing if um despite height differences so i'm um for those listening at home i'm a very short female <laughs> and my volunteers are very tall males yeah um and it appears that they're not really picking up on the differences in our bodies yeah currently it's the actual color of the mask okay but that could be because the mask is so bright and you think if something really enrages you, you're not taking in the whole image. You're just yeah, looking in like on something that's easy. Cue, yeah. yeah, so that's probably what's happening. But, you know, a little bit more data and we'll see what that turns out. There was a hashtag going around a while ago that was scientist or serial killer. I suppose you got in on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I had people putting up pictures of them in the field, like scrambling out of the bush covered in mud, holding an axe. I so wish I did because I um I placed an order last week and I actually sent a screenshot to my sister because I was like, you know, if any <laughs> if anything happens, it was I think I had like five masks that I bought. I bought uh, a net. <laughs> duct tape (laughs) and a cage and I was like you know it just doesn't look right to the person looking over it just (laughs) and scalpels and it's like you know you never know but yeah maybe don't mess with a zoologist is probably the the take-home I know we we look weird (laughs) doing stuff out in the field I remember having (laughs) a um in my honours, I super glued a snake to my hand, a dead snake to my hand. <laughs> and just that moment of, um, so it was a dry frozen carpet python that yeah. I was going to use for predator display models. And um, it didn't fit in the freezer. So I had to cut it in half to fit it in. <laughs> and then I was Googling, how do you stick together a dead animal? <laughs> um, and then Again, after a few unsuccessful <laughs> searches and... Being like, maybe IT's watching what I'm doing right now and I'm about to get shut down. Yeah. I went, okay, we're going to try super glue, And yeah, stuck it to my hand and had that conflicting moment of, do I go and tell my supervisor or do I sit here and hope that the sweat gets rid of it? And I ended up just, I ripped it off and <laughs> dealt with the scales being on my hand for a few days. <laughs> yeah, another thing you shouldn't do is check the Google history of a, a biologist because yeah. you're going to come up with weird things about i think detachable genitalia <laughs> was the one i was searching for a while ago just 
<laughs> Makes total sense in context. <laughs> well, to you at least. And then when you explain it, you're like, do I sound crazier? Or yeah. like, does this make sense to you? I don't know. And I do sit there thinking, as I'm doing research on Google Scholar, are people in IT you know, at the university keeping track of anything? And is any of this going to... You know? There's an alarm ringing somewhere. Because yeah. <laughs> I can't explain it. I'd just rather not have to. <laughs> but yeah, check out uh, hashtag scientist or serial killer. You jump on it if it's still that going. That is fantastic. <laughs> I'll bring it back. <laughs> and I want to ask you about before you got into scientific research, you had a stint in scientific storytelling. Yes, gosh, that feels a while ago. <laughs> How long ago was that? Uh Four years ago, I think. Yeah, about four years ago. And that was with National Geographic? Yeah, with Nat Geo and um, got to go over on an internship to South Africa for Mm. a few months. Um, Loved it. Absolutely loved science communication and kind of talking about just animals in general and creating an interest. But I don't know. I loved it. And then I was like, what else could I be doing? Like, what more could I be doing Mm. rather than telling the story? And that was go back and actually know what's happening and Mm. um i never wanted to do honors or a phd i um saw what it did to people (laughs) 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 and was a little bit terrified but yeah it it built in a passion in me seeing you know going and interviewing people for documentaries it kind of made me go yeah this is exciting and let's encourage it so maybe one day um I'll go back and try to do a bit more there. Yeah. Whereabouts in South Africa were you? Oh, uh, we travelled around. So the nicest um, place was probably Durban, just meeting farmers there. Mm. And um, the project I was doing was more interviewing um, hunters and farmers and okay. getting their perspective on trophy hunting. How, which... how did you get this internship? Is this a program they run? or No, I am. Um, I was very, um, now I look back on it, a little bit cocky, but I guess cocky is <laughs> good in science. And I just um, went onto their website and was like, what internships are going? Yeah. Applied and, you know, got the email, thought maybe this is probably not from them and someone's yeah. wanting my bank account details or something. But it was true. <laughs> and um, I did it. And from that, there was potential to then um, join in for another three-month contract. But um I'm definitely a family person and mm. being away from home for six months was a bit a yeah. bit too much at that stage. And probably a big, it's a big move. It's a big Jump move. Jump on a plane out of Australia to go to travel around South Africa. For three it. months and you don't, and my poor dad, my yeah. poor, <laughs> I, I remember being like, I was 19 and I remember being like, why are you so scared? Like, it's fine. And he's like, how are you getting there? Oh, I'm flying by myself to, you know, here, here. And then in Joburg, I'm there for a few days just to look around. And then I'll fly to South Africa and someone will pick me up. And he was a cop at the time. And I I think he had to sit down and just have a scotch. And he's like, this isn't. So, you know, he for Christmas got me a torch that was also a baton and was like, here you go. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I think it was was nice to come back and a bit more, um, you know, that's, exciting and i just say to people say yes to everything that comes up and if you you know if you do want to work in documentaries you do have to be very um driven no one's just gonna be like hey do you want to be the next david annenbrough because i feel like if they were there would probably be a mass murder from 
all of the kids that grew up watching David Attenborough being like, I want to be that next person. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's exciting. It's fun. It's definitely a, a type of person whenever you work with these documentary film crews. Yes. And you get chatting to you know, the camera guys and they say they, you know, they haven't seen their kids in three years. Yeah. Because they've been in Nepal and Croatia and Zimbabwe and oh. just jumping from job to job. And you watch the, um, there's, I can't remember who the cameraman was, but he was a Nat Geo employee that was doing snow leopards and yes. he was trying to catch one coming out of its den. And I just remember hearing the story because it was like Christmas day and he was already <laughs> a week later than what he told his wife. And he was just sitting there like, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And yeah. finally it happened. But I get very impatient <laughs> and I imagine me sitting in like a little hide watching, waiting for a snow leopard would co- to come out would eventually, um, yeah. I'd go crazy. <laughs> yeah, I remember meeting a uh, cameraman called Rod Clark and he's an old school wildlife photographer from back in the day, apparently just mates with Attenborough. Yeah. Goes around oh, his house for dinner, you, you know, <laughs> that type of stuff. And just the stories that he told about, you know, all the other guys in the crew were just like g and like, hey, Rod, tell us about that time you got charged by a rhino yeah. as well. And they're insane. <laughs> 1976. <laughs> I, um, I was on the back of a safari ute. At, um, there's this beautiful reserve called Scotia Reserve and it's a privately owned game park that's um, just does a lot of like tour- ecotourism. Mm. And I'm on the back of this ute while the guy that runs it's driving and this elephant just came running out and he's like, um oh boss slow down and it just kept running at me and I was so conflicted because I'm there trying to get the video recorder out and ready to start (laughs) filming and I'm looking through the lens you know adjusting it and I'm like oh I must have zoom on like (laughs) I like looked at the side and it's you know eye to eye with an elephant's um pretty terrified especially this one was renowned for being a bit of an a-hole and liking (laughs) to get a bit aggressive and I mean, this is why I know, though, that I love this sort of aspect because, you know, camera people are just crazy and yeah. it's exciting. But, yeah, I, I'm too sooky for that now. <laughs> but it's so much fun, I think, doing that kind of work. Yeah. And you see everything um, in a new light. And that's what I always told myself when um, – because I did a bit of everything. I did the filming, the voiceover, like tried to do the stories and stuff like Mm. that as much as I could and as much as they would let me. Mm. Um, And just taking the time after filming, you know, for a couple of minutes, looking at whatever it was just with my eyes and absorbing it because, you know, you hear stories of people going on holidays and you're like, what did you see? And they're like, I have 5,000 photos, but I don't really know what I saw. Yeah. And it's, you know, you're not absorbing what you're, you're looking at. You're watching it through a camera lens as opposed yeah. to your own eyes. Yeah. 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 So take that time to just look yeah. at it. Is it something you think you could go back to or would it be too demanding? Because it is, a, it's, it's not just a job, it's a life. It's a life. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I would love to get more into um, teaching. So that's the big thing mm. that I took out of it was I more enjoyed going and meeting the people and talking to them and learning from them and also teaching them. So I think now I'm more kind of leaning towards wanting to maybe lecture or be in a position where I can kind of encourage mm. others to study and do all that fun. And the production you were involved in, was mm. that a specific documentary or a series? No, it was all of these little um, just component clips. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're going to go here and you're going to interview so-and-so and you're going to get this bit of information. And maybe that's also what kind of um, made me go, this isn't for me because it wasn't a full, you know, you see a documentary and you think it's going to be just a clear cut. You're running from day one to day 10. <laughs> and at the end of it, you're going to have this beautiful story. But yeah. what I saw was is actually getting clips from different places and bringing them together and putting them in a, order that makes them tell a story Mm. or to have multiple different components so um the cool thing was i did get to keep all of the footage that i filmed as well so even if it gets used i can still just have it so you know every now and then christmas party i'm like oh do you guys want (laughs) to see the holiday see the time that i did this for (laughs) nat geo nat geo (laughs) (laughs) and so did you go in knowing photography and filming and things or are you learning in the um i always loved like film and television Mm. and um i did a lot of photography and filming in like end of high school and that's when i was like this is pretty cool i like this storyboards and storytelling idea um but no yeah (laughs) pretty um it was very intense learning the software in particular and you know how to change colors um because that was the big thing is you know you're filming on different days so even the positioning of the sun's different yeah but you have to make it look like it's the same day by changing the color and (laughs) um you know one of the um ian who was one of my mentors was like you know after a day walk outside have a beer come back in and look at what you just made because usually your eyes start to go (laughs) and you've made like a techno disco on the screen because you're adjusting the colors (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so yeah it was really fun and yeah. there is that potential of you know particularly because i film my birds and the behaviors they do i am interested in doing little clips to put up mm. so people can actually see noisy miners and what yeah. they do it's definitely something we should be doing particularly in the natural history fields that we're in mm. because we're out there in the field and we're observing these things yeah. and we should be telling our stories that's it that way and i mean it's they're surprised that, you know, that's what I'm trying to do with in-situ science <laughs> and making videos and podcasts. And that's where it's good too because it makes you go, you know, um, I always get thrown back when someone goes, so what do you study? Mm. And it's ridiculous because I know what I study, but I never really kind of tell people and show them. So when you get asked, it's all of a sudden like, oh, God, <laughs> what do I do? Um, and I think we're lucky at this uni because not only do we have researchers that go out into the field a lot, but there's a lot of old farmers and people that know the land who are eager to tell you their stories and they might not necessarily understand the impact of what they've Mm. seen but you know i've had someone um tell me that they've seen like um wattle birds attacking noisy miners and that's something i haven't seen myself Mm. and i got really excited when i heard that because i'm like oh like what's happening here and you know if we're communicating more with the community then there's potential they can tell us Mm. when we're wrong yeah (laughs) or when we're right yeah and if we can tell these stories in a great way we can it's essentially a gateway into science careers. I'm guessing we're both here for the same reason and that we grew up watching David Attenborough. Oh, yes. <laughs> Not because, you know, I was a huge fan of E.O. Wilson and all of his, you know, groundbreaking scientific papers. Yeah, um... <laughs> I can't say I'm a big fan of reading the old papers <laughs> from the, but my um my big one was Jane Goodall. All right. Yeah, my um 
see, this is why it comes down to dad. I told him when I went to Africa and he's like, don't go. I was like, you're the reason this happened. Mm. Cause he, um, <laughs> he bought me a Jane Goodall autobiography when I was, I think I was only like eight. I was too young. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that because it was one and she talks about, um, polio the first time polio infected her chimpanzees and they didn't know what could happen mm-hmm. um but that was what made me go that's cool yeah. that's really cool so yeah. you know drives your passion a little bit and then yeah. obviously david Attenborough. um even if you're not an animal lover i think you know that's a pretty common thing is everyone loves him <laughs> yeah goodall's a tough one because you want to try and emulate her and then you look at what she did yes and how all-consuming what she did was. Oh, she, and she went 120%. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, you. I think she was 21. And yeah. they're like, we're going to put you on a ship and send you to Tanzania. And she's like, cool. Yeah. Here's tinned fish to eat for. However, <laughs> like no wonder she went vegan because I think eating tinned fish for even just a week would be enough. Yeah. But yeah, and that's where it's inspirational though is, you know, I – complain if i'm tired i'm like oh god i'm so done and then you think of these you know your old scientists who were tough as rock who were the ones that are going out on a ship to somewhere where no one's ever been or jumping into the water after Mm. a great white shark and not really thinking about yeah um and you know whether that's ignorance or (laughs) but um yeah it's exciting and david attenborough is the same the david attenborough we pitch in our head now is the presenter that flies to a spot does some recording and can fly back again, but his roots were as a hardcore crawling explorer. through the mud. They and went with you know cameras to uh, you know indigenous societies that had never met Westerners before, yeah. and they were the point of first contact and were actually discovering things for the first time. And he's like a published anthropologist and ornithologist as well. Like it's, I don't know. I worry that maybe that doesn't exist anymore starting to die yeah. yeah and then it's also in contrast to that too is maybe i do feel like there's becoming too much of an emphasis on what you are oh you've got a phd great how mm. many papers have you published what have you done and you know you think of people like david Attenborough and um jane goodall wasn't even a scientist when she went over yeah. to study tool use she was just a secretary and got her PhD awarded to her afterwards because yeah. they're like, oh, God, you've you've changed the scientific world. Like, here you go. <laughs> but now I think that kind of scares people from wanting to do a career in science because they see David Attenborough and they're feeling really inspired and then they get into this field where, you know, you write an assignment in your first year of uni and basically get it, hand it back to you with your heart and shreds and <laughs> here you go. Um, yeah. And it kind of knocks people down a little bit and... Um, I think it needs to go back to that passion that yeah. we see of, you know, David Attenborough crawling through the mud and grabbing a crab and being like, ooh, Steve yeah. Irwin even. like. Yeah, it's kind of like we set scientists particular hoops that they think they mm. have to jump through when you say you, you're not worthy if you haven't hit all these benchmarks yeah. instead of looking what at what an individual can contribute. Yeah, and the, the passion behind it and... That's definitely something I I was lucky because my supervisors are just amazing and they're all about um, if you've got the passion you'll you'll find the answer like mm. you'll work hard enough but you do get some kind of projects that are just like no these are the the hoops you need to hit and mm. if you don't hit them then it's over. Yeah, I feel like I'm reaching <laughs> a good point where I realize there are the hoops I have to jump through 
and I'll just do them, but not make that my life's goal. And don't That's put too it. much emotional investment in that. You have a high hoop after that, and it's yeah. yeah you you, you got to choose what you're gonna you're gonna try. With. I don't know if that's good career advice. I, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see do how that pays Do the bare off. minimum. <laughs> 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 right now, I'm like, just make my supervisors happy. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you meet those people that they just they love jumping through those hoops. Yeah, their goals are pump out those grants. Publish them papers, high impact journals. It's what it's all about. And, and that's it. Playing the game <laughs> is what they do. And they make very, very successful scientists. Yeah. But we can't all be like that. No, you need some grease monkeys in there to yeah. actually get the work. And that's where I think it is exciting that there's knowledge that that's needed because, yeah, you might not enjoy. I love writing. So mm. I really quite enjoy writing reports and lit refuse and all the stuff people usually hate. Mm. But um, I'm lucky in that I love field work too. But if you're someone who hates writing, go do the field work. Mm. Go be someone who's going to contribute physically and go and do the hard work that someone doesn't want to do. And that's how you end up with really strong teams. Yeah. Well, it's good that you like writing. <laughs> I say that right now. I haven't started my thesis yet. So <laughs> maybe in a year's time. <laughs> I'll be like, you know what I hate? <laughs> yeah. But is, is that the main job from now on in? I'm guessing all data collection and stuff. Data collection. Um, there's still a pro- – so we've just developed a protocol for the neuro side of things um, and it seems like it works. It's new and it's exciting. Um so once we apply that to noisy miners, then it will be pretty much everything is right. collected and the fun begins. Um, I've been told that the writing period is the hardest. <laughs> I was amazed and I continue to be amazed at the hardest part is just physically typing that much. Yeah. The ideas are there. All the information is there. You know what you did. Just the time and hours it takes to physically hit keys that many times. <laughs> is is the hardest part and knowing too that someone i think what gets me is i'll write something and i'm like damn that was a nice experiment and then you submit it and they're like "Ooh, yeah. <laughs> why didn't you do this and it's like okay i'll be i'll be back and then you run off and do another experiment and come back and it's just like this constant to and to and throw yeah. again the hoops we have to jump through making <laughs> Agro reviewers happy with our papers. Happy with the papers. So then you can <laughs> go and talk to people about them and that's when the excitement begins is yeah. the actual conference presentations or the podcast. And, and the obligatory question I ask everyone that's submitting a thesis, mm. binding colour. Have you decided? <laughs> no. No? No. You've got a year. <laughs> that's my goal for today. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good. I've told told the story on the podcast a hundred times, but mine was hot pink. So uh, hot pink. That's the benchmark. I didn't even know that was an option. Apparently, it's not. That's the <laughs> <laughs> Turns out there are rules that universities have. That, you know, really, theses must be bound in dull, you know, maroon, navy blue, forest green type of thing. I didn't, I didn't know that was a thing. I don't know if it was very well publicized. It I probably th- wasn't until they saw your hot pink one I and they're like, so. all universities are now going to bring in this <laughs> new <laughs> Well, nobody questioned it when I handed it in. Oh. It, it went off, it got marked, it got accepted. Nobody, nobody said anything. And then I just started noticing a lot more uh, awareness about 
thesis requirements. <laughs> and so I think it just sort of flew under the radar and nobody noticed. And Done. It's, it's now in the annals of Macquarie University's thesis library. It's just the one sitting out in the middle. Yeah, it's great. Because <laughs> I, I would really like, um, like, a br- like a yellow... Because the nice yellow and the noisy miners, mm. eye patch, you know, something like that. I think like there's an official thesis yellow. It's pretty ugly. It's... Oh, it's pea yellow, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's and I like it's the yellow that... Uh, it's primary colour yellow. Like, there's ah. not a whole lot of nuance to it. It's Don't just, have time for that. Yeah. I'm going to... Yeah. I'll go up and see the UNE binding yeah. group and be like, do you have any of the, like, the patches, like when you're doing your house tiles? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's when I should have known I was doing something wrong because I couldn't use the university printery. I had to find like a little family-owned printery in, in Ashfield. And yeah, they did have the little the little fabric swabs that I could go, oh, look at that. It's They're a- like, we didn't think this color was ever going to get you. you see, go. <laughs> it's, not, it's not really hot pink. It's like a shiny metallic pink. Oh, you went, you went, thing is. You went all out for yeah. it. You were like, not just hot pink, but we're going shiny. Yeah. We're bedazzling it. It made perfect sense because I was working on a pink animal. Well, I was going to say, theme, yeah. that's, you know, that's your justification there. Is yeah. It matches the animals. So, attention grabbing too. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Well, I'm glad I brought it up now. So, you've got time to think about it. <laughs> well, that's going to be my submission. procrastination between writing chapters is being like, oh, I'll go back yeah. and think about the color. <laughs> think, think about what pictures you put on the title page. Nice. Yes. Yeah. I've already got a few of them because I... Um, Unfortunately, they say you can't have your favorite, you know, subjects, but I do have a few birds that mm. have been very obliging to being handled and, or I have one that was absolutely psychotic <laughs> from the second I caught it and trying to handle it in the, the sound booth. And, um, I was, um, someone was trying to film me for like a short UNE clip mm. and he's like, I'll oh, just take it out of the cage. And I'm like, yeah. I wish, wish it wasn't this one. And like I just, so I just put my hand in there and this bird, I swear it like looked back at me and went, not today. <laughs> and I grabbed it and just in a split second, because they, they don't have strong bites, but their claw, like their talons yeah. are ridiculous. And it just turned <laughs> and got the skin between my fingers and just looked at me eye to eye the whole time and the guy's like now just smile and you know enjoy this and I still look at that clip and it's this bird just evil eyeing me <laughs> and me trying not to cry and smiling at the camera <laughs> all right if you can get a still from that video and stick it in your thesis <laughs> this you is go. my photo of myself yeah figure yeah. one <laughs> <laughs> you can see the pain in her eyes <laughs> we've been thinking now like for you know the contents page of my thesis, all my little dot points were little flowers and stuff too. Like, I think I might have gotten away with stuff I probably shouldn't have. And <laughs> you know, they probably liked it though because I imagine you would get ones that are written really quickly and um, in a really panic state, and then you get one, and the person's actually been like, unless you everything else is panicked, and you're I spent like, this too much time thinking page. about my dot points. <laughs> Yeah, maybe don't take thesis writing advice from me. <laughs> In the credits, and James Hanlon <laughs> like to thank him for his critiques on <laughs> formatting advice. Stuff. <laughs> Make sure to check in with us. Let us know how it all goes. How it all goes. Done deal. Good luck with everything. If people want to follow your journey, 
Mm. You're on Twitter? Yeah, Lucy Farrow 7, the number 7. Good. Supposedly there's many there's of me Lucy in the Farrow's world. Yeah. All right. Um, and I'll see if I can figure out how to use it so I can actually <laughs> communicate with people on there. And you have a lab website. Yeah, so I'm part of the Animal Behaviour and Ecology Laboratory at UNE, mm-hmm. um, so ABLE. And you can kind of go in there. We have a lot of exciting projects coming up. You can see the projects we've spoken about. So Farsnia's work on the genetics. You can see the papers that Ahmed published on fledgling success. And we've got a lot going on. And there's even um, Bell's turtles have come mm-hmm. into our lab now. So we're not just birds. So <laughs> <laughs> if, you're, you know, if you're not a bird person, there's a bit for everyone. Yeah. We're going to have to get a Bell's turtle person on here, I think, to tell yeah. that story. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Lucy. Thank you for having me. And thank you guys for listening. Check us out online at inscituscience.com and on social media at Science. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.